Hi, welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. I'm Billy Shore, and my guest today is Chef J.J. Johnson. Got a new restaurant called Field Trip, and many folks know him as the James Beard Award-winning author of a great cookbook called Between Harlem and Heaven. J.J., I feel like you're in the middle of so many things that are going on in our country right now from uh, always food-related, but also the pandemic. And um, I read a really, really powerful piece that uh, you had in Esquire about uh, Black Lives Matters and your own experience. I just feel like this is the perfect time to be having this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and you're always in it. You know, you, you're an inspiration to me and what you do and share our strength. So um, thank you. Well, I think the last time we saw each other, JJ, uh, was at a restaurant you were at called Minton, uh, where you hosted a group of us that were visiting a number of programs in New York. Uh, I think that might've been the first time I had a chance to taste your cooking, which was absolutely fabulous. And uh, tell us both what you're doing now and how you're doing, just given what we're all living through in our, in our world. Wow. That was so, that was, wow. That's really long ago. You know, I was cooking at Minton. Yeah. I was cooking at Minton's four was four four and a half five years ago uh, when I left when I left to spread my wings and try to uh, have a real strong culinary or food point of view on my own uh, I have a fast casual in Harlem called field trip we're a rice bowl shop uh, we've been open a little bit over a year I uh, got caught in the pandemic of being open for about six months and trying to figure out what to do uh, and not to close my doors as I was seeing my peers close their doors. And kind of found this really strong voice around the tools that, you know, being a part of, of your organization has, has given me through the years to conquer food insecurity. And as many people know me, I'm, if you know me, I'm a, I consider myself a disruptor in the food space. I'm always <laughs> disrupting some way, somehow for a good way or to, to, to open your eyes to something new. So in the heart of the pandemic, uh, my wife is a nurse, so our house has been very busy. Nobody was sheltering in place. Uh, she's a nurse downtown. Her hospital had to convert to the hospital called Hospital Special Surgery. They had to convert and uh, take the overflow from New York Presbyterian and uh, Flushing Hospital at that time. So she was one of the leads uh, handling that and uh, really, really being in it, working long days, long hours. She came home one day and said, Hey, you know, did you cook tonight or did you bring food home from field trip? I said, you left at seven. It's one thirty in the morning. She said, we don't have any time. We have no time to think about eating. And then the next day I sent her some food to her hospital. And then I said, what about my immediate community? What about Harlem Hospital? What about Metropolitan Mount Sinai? So got on Twitter, found some friend, found a friend that wife was in the ER room, sent 40 rice bowls, went to Twitter and said, hey, this I felt like one of the best things they've ever done. And people started to match me. I'll, ma I'll match you 40. I'll match you 40. And people started to call in. And at that time, I had no, I, I had minimal staff. I had three people working and myself, uh, working from the time we opened to the time we closed on limited hours following CDC rules and governor and the mayor's uh, mandates just to keep some hope in the community. And our Buy a Bowl program really allowed to uh, let people come back to work to feed frontline workers. Uh, and then, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, we stopped when we realized frontline workers didn't need food anymore. And then we turned to children and families right in the heart of the summertime because 
I don't need to preach to you, right? The summer times are when kids are unable to get all their meals because there's no place. And this summer was probably one of the hardest summers. Wow. So uh, is, is, is the buy a bowl program, is that what you call it? Buy a bowl? Yeah, we, we called it a buy a bowl program. So, you know, you could buy a bowl from anybody in the, in, that was a frontline worker. Um, and then you could buy a bowl or like a pro- – and then we switch over to these produce boxes because our agriculture system was crumbling. So how can we support local produce? How can we lo- support pro- local farmers? So we were buying produce from local farmers that were then going with NYCHA, Madison Boys and Girls Club, all types of programs around New York City. Uh, and what happened was other people that had access to grants, the Lee Foundation, Power of Ten, you know, small, you know, chapters of fraternities and sororities, they were donating, they were buying a big amount of, uh, of buy a bowl program for frontline workers and families and children, which really gave field trip this voice. Uh, before we were, I just consider ourselves another fast casual, which made us really cool is that we were in Harlem. Now it was like people really knew what we, what we stood for, you know, that we would be with you through the darkest days and we'll also be there on the brightest days. And that really led to help, I feel, define people got to understand a little bit more about myself and also got to define field trip as a fast casual. We were getting we're getting calls from all developers now around the United States and we could bring field trip to, to their community where they're developing or an existing space that went out of business because they feel that they need or that they feel like we represent what the future restaurants are. So we're we're gonna see field trip in other places. It's just a matter of time. You will, you will see field trip in other places. Correct. Wow! Congratulations. <laughs> That's really exciting. And what's the Thank status you. now of Biable? Is it still going on? So we we've halted the Biable program at the moment. We want to come back with a new initiative. I really wanted to, to do a uh, school breakfast for kids before they went to school to get a hot breakfast from field trip with like a freshly pressed juice, which would have been some rice grits, scrambled eggs, and like a meat plant based product in the bowl. Because New York City isn't giving any hot lunch or breakfast right now to any kids. So people could sign their kids up or local schools by our area. We would do anywhere from 100 to 200 kids. That was my goal. But the school school in New York City kept getting pushed back week by week. So it was really hard to coordinate. I think this is like the second week that kids are actually like in school. Um, so I hope to be able to launch something else. We are adopting a couple of schools at the moment. To, to feed what we what I consider the new frontline workers are teachers to give them an appreciation. So we're feeding the Mosaic School through wellness through the wellness and school program. That's our adopted school that we adopt to feed like to teach children about schools. So we're going to give fifty five teachers a hot meal this Friday coming up, and we'll do that with a couple of other schools nearby us in the Harlem community, just to show our appreciation that you know you're back at school, you're putting yourself on the front line, and here's just something delicious from field trip. And the school you're doing Friday, did you say it's called the Mosaic School? Yeah, the Mosaic School. It's in East Harlem. Um, it's on 112th Street, I believe, between Madison and – or between Lexington and 3rd. <laughs> 112 between Lexington and 3rd, yeah. That's going to be quite a treat for them. That should be incredible. JJ, let's go back a little bit and talk about you as a chef. I've heard you describe many different ways. The Rob Report wrote that among the you were among the first of his culinary generation to explore what it means to make black food in America. I've often heard you described as a rice obsessive chef um, <laughs> and uh, especially uh, described as somebody that creates cultural connections through food. I, w- I want to 
really go back to the beginning. Where did this start for you? The cooking, the passion for food, the passion for using food as a as a platform to express your voice about other issues. Uh, when did you first start to cook? So, you know, I first started cooking with my grandmother, like as a really young kid. So my grandma Iris was retired. My parent, my grandparents just moved from Long Island and my mom, my dad moved along with them, you know, what you see in a lot of, you know, black and brown households, families sticking together to help each other out with the working class family. So I would get dropped off in the mornings to my grandparents' house. My grandmother would play. My grandmother was Puerto Rican. She would play loud salsa music. Uh, and my great aunts lived in that house also. My grandfather would be watching his shows or fixing up their new house or gardening. And it was like it was like such a vibrant moment that I didn't watch cartoons. I would like be in the kitchen, like looking up to her, and she would like give me little things to do or made me believe that I was doing something. And I now I look back and show that she was, you know, injecting food DNA into me. And that's really where it started for me. I was a dishwasher. I went to Culinary Institute of America. I worked in some really great restaurants in New York City, um, and then I I, I kind of hit this brick wall where. I couldn't find my voice in food. I was just cooking or honing a craft of what I was told I should be cooking. Like, okay, learn how to make risotto really well. Learn how to make polenta really well. Nothing that was bad, but like honing just a craft to become an expert in. And then I went on this cooking show called Rocco's Dinner Party. I won my episode. Um, and I, 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 I found a, young, a gentleman named Alexander Smalls, or he found me. And he told me about, you know, this food called Afro-Asian cooking. I really had no idea what he was talking about. And we went on a journey to Ghana for 60 days. And I really learned about the food of the African diaspora. But what I learned was the food of the African diaspora was me. You know, my dad, African-American, my mom, West Indian and Puerto Rican. Like that's, that's what the diaspora is, right? The, the way that people not through choice have moved around the world and the culture has come together and through that culture, there's food that many people don't talk about, right? And based on where you are, there might be other people that live there and you cultivate together and you make food. And I realized that food, it was this vehicle to tell stories, right? It was this vehicle for people to understand culture. And I was young at the time when I was cooking at at at, uh, at Cecil. You know, it was an Afro-Asian American restaurant. We won a lot of awards and my claim to fame. I moved on. It's a steakhouse now, something very different than what it was before. And when I left to go on my own, I realized that small vehicles and storytelling, like bringing in music, bringing in food, showing how it pairs together, taking a simple ingredient as rice, you can tell the history of that area and make it very relatable to people. To break down like the barriers of like the stigma of who a person is based on what you might see on TV or what nobody might teach you, you can actually learn it through a restaurant or through the food and the culture if you travel there, or if you just try to cook at home something, right? You can learn the spices that have come from that region or the grains or this type of cooking style. You can actually understand a person through food. And that's really what field trip is, is why we call it, why I call it field trip. You're on this journey around the world through rice grains. You can be in Southeast Asia. You can be in South America, you could be in American South, you can be in Tex-Mex, you know, you could be in West Africa, right? And you might not be able to go there, but you can say, oh my goodness, sticky rice, green curry. Yes, that is Southeast Asian. And where do you get your rice? You can have these moments. And I think that's the greatest thing about food is that it has no boundaries or barriers. And it tells a story um, in each dish. 
And, and, and I'm seeing more and more, I'm seeing more and more chefs now be able to cook the food of their diaspora, regardless of where they're from. Hmm. And, and did the kernel, uh, the seed for field trip, was that, um, did that come from the trip to Ghana? Was it there before? Did it come afterwards? What, what was the spark? For field trip? Yeah. For field trip. The name? Well, no, for the restaurant. Just, I mean, for the idea that you were going to like set out on your own and, and create your own. No, it didn't come from Ghana. From from Ghana, I started to fall in love with rice. Okay. Right. I started to want to know about this West African grain called Glamorima, which was like the original first rice grain that then got West Africa, asked China to grow it for them because it was blacklisted from them. China realized they can grow it better and never went back to Af- West Africa to get any more rice. So I was very interested in this like one particular grain that I started to do research with and Glenn Roberts from Anton Mills became my mentor in this rice project. Then I started traveling the world to Singapore, Israel, India, and I started to really love, I started to see rice more at the center of the plate. It wasn't about the protein. It was about the the rice and the vegetables and how glorious it is. Like this beautiful rice with dried fruit in it and these spices and how it fluffs in the crispy bottom of the pot. And then I started to say, well, why why do we disrespect the rice ingredient like this? Why do we do this? Why can't I do this better? And um, that's where that's where it all that's where it all came from. So and then I was struggling with the words. I was struggling with the, what we would name it, the words, this, that, and 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 it all it all just came together. So so you're uh, did you say you're close to a year in now with field trip? We're a little over a year in now, and you know field trip we have one we have one at the U.S. Open tournament. So we actually have like two field trips, and I always like downplay that one, but because it's only like three weeks out the year. But yeah, field trip has a brick and mortars over a year in the Harlem location. We have one at the U.S. Open tennis tournament, and I really you know. I really believe that field trip is a is a is a brand and a fast casual restaurant for working class America or working class world. And when the pandemic uh, began, JJ, did you just kind of grit your teeth and say, "I'm going to keep this open"? <laughs> Not many people were able to do that, but you managed to do it. Yeah, yeah. The, for the pandemic, it was all about grit for me. I, did, I grit my teeth. I just said, "There's no way to like close the doors. If I close the doors, I would let my family down. My wife, who." lets me work really hard, my kids, to see their dad as like first business owner in the family, right? Would would lose a sense of hope for for my family. My parents that gave us uh, me and my sister a better future, you know, was like, nah, I can't do that, man. If if I'm gonna fail, I gotta be the last person standing here. I I have to be the one to see it fail, right? I can't believe with people that have been in this industry longer than me telling me like, oh, I'm close the doors, man. It's going to be all right. It's going to be two to three weeks. And luckily I had my wife because she was like, no, we're three months behind China, right? Three months behind China, pay attention to China, three months behind them. And that really what, that's really what helped me out. You know, she really guided me through the process of like what to look out for, how to stay safe, all those things, which I, which I'm very thankful for. And yeah, just gritting my teeth and, clean the floors and wash the dishes and open and close the gate. Uh, and I would say that I probably, I worked, not probably, but I worked harder than I did when I was a young cook. It sounds like, it sounds like there was 
probably never any doubt just given who you are, who your wife is, you were gonna you were gonna make it work. And boy, what a gift it's been to the community. Yeah, no, but listen, I said before I would before I opened up Field Trip in Harlem, I said, you know, if if, if we can make it in Harlem, we can make it anywhere in the world because the Harlem community will uplift you. Right? It would like uplift us to the world or to to the greater New York. And that's what the community did. I remember people walking in with their last twenty bucks saying I got to spend my money with you. I've never been here before, but you're open and other people are closed. Or, hey, I saw you give that lady last night. She was begging you for food and you just figured out how to feed her. And then I saw you take the money out of your own pocket and, and pay for the meal. Like, don't you own the place? Like, well, everything has to be accounted for. And having like these real deep conversations. And I'll never forget the the, the, the lady that couldn't afford meals and we would come in and she would she would the first time she had the bowl and laugh about it. She came back the next day in the morning. was like, yo, this bowl is really, really good. Like, this is good. And it was like, that brought a smile to my face. Like we, not that she just was able to eat the food, that she actually came back the next day to let us know how good it was, was like really mean something, right? Because that's bigger than it. Like we really put a smile on this person's face because they probably people give them food all the time. But that they got quality food through the through this hard time in life was really um would re- really put a smile really really put a smile on my face. Wow, that is so interesting to hear. And you know, I've heard from some of your colleagues and peers, from Daniel Hum to Kwame Anwachi, that uh, they started cooking in effect for a different guest or a different customer during this pandemic, and they found it more meaningful than anything else they had done before at you know the highest level of cuisine like the woman you were just talking about that that gave them a fulfillment that they simply hadn't found before um and i i think there's a sense that uh even hopefully when the pandemic eases and and is behind us i think there's a sense among a lot of chefs that they don't want to lose that feeling of cooking for people who have such an appreciation for the food because it's subsistence for them. But you know, I always said that restaurants could solve the hunger issue in America. That's something I've always been saying. Well, why we throw away so much food? Why are we not why are we not just cooking food and giving it to people? Like we literally waste so much food. Like we should just be giving out bowls every day. If I was Chipotle, if field trip was if I was Chipotle, I would be giving out burritos every day. Because they can do it. Because they can do it, right? So I hope I can get to a point where I can just give out bowls every day. Right, a certain amount of bowls that give back to the communities we're in, regardless if we're in a rich community, there's still poor people there, or if we're in a poor community, right? We're gonna give back, but we're not. We're never gonna stop giving food. Well, I love. I loved your phrase that the Harlem community will uplift you, uh, and what I especially loved was what was behind that was the notion that the community really did notice. They really paid attention to what you were doing. Yeah, the community really. You know, I think that one of the greatest moments for me, besides food was an individual couple, you know, I hire from the community, right? People that live in the community work there, 90% of our staff. So the biggest thing is that, you know, individual, there's an individual, her name is Kira, you know, she works there, she's in it. And people would come in and be like, oh my God, Kira, you have a job? Like, I don't have a job. You got a job? And it, it gave this sense of hope that every time the lights would come on at field trip, it meant that potentially I could have a job one day, that there's this hope, like we're coming back, right? Like what I call this Obama hope, 
Like it's, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through. Right. And that's what field trip started to do. And I think people started to realize like, you know, these big fast, fast food brands don't really care about us. They're just here collecting our money. They're not doing anything in our immediate community. They're not handing anything out. They're not giving food anywhere. They're not contributing to the long lines at the food banks. You know? And that's where people were like, I want to make sure that th- these people have a job the next day. Right? And that's where that's that that was that was very big for me because like I think I'm I'm always going to be in the business to cook delicious food, but I'm in the business to make sure that Right now, for me, that I can employ people that as our industry is crumbling, you know, potentially I can grow to make sure that people that want to work in the food industry could keep working. Well, you're, you know, storytelling is such an important part of who you are as a chef. And I'm so excited that we're having this conversation on Add Passion and Stir and that we're going to get to, you know, broadcast this story to a larger audience because I think if more chefs understood and more restaurateurs understood, whether they were large or small, the return from being anchored in the community, as you've described, and from the community understanding the investment that you're making in the community and them and the community wanting to give back, the community wanting to uplift you, we could have a a different industry and a different society. Um, so you, uh, so you've got, you've got to find as many ways as you can to tell this story, JJ, cause it's really inspiring. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think more than ever, people are realizing the importance of food in its community. I was literally saying to somebody the other day, somebody was like, wow, man, the crime, I hear the crime is up in New York city. And I was like, I think the crime in those neighborhoods that are getting reported in have always been up. I think it's interesting to see like the crime is up in the Upper West Side of New York City. But let's take a step back and think about that. All these buildings are boarded up, right? And majority of those buildings that are boarded up are restaurants. And when you have a restaurant, a restaurant's really 24 hours, right? You have the porter who's overnight cleaning the restaurants with the lights open. The garbage is outside. The garbage truck comes by and picks up the trash, right? All those things keep a community going, right? And also keeps crime off the street because people are like, oh my God, I can't do what I'm going to do there because somebody's watching me. It's like restaurants are like these big brothers that actually help the community push and go. You know, I I think one of the greatest stories we're watching is like a gentleman around the corner from me called Make My Fish who like has tripled his staff because people started eating at his restaurant because of, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement of not eating at, at, at black owned restaurants. And he said to me one day in the street, like, yo, man, JJ, I can't even keep up. I was like, that's a great thing. Like, you can't keep up now? Hire some more people. Right? Hire some more people from the community. Right? And, you know, so restaurants are a very big anchor of the community. And I hope people realize that. And I hope when restaurants do come back that they take care of their community just a little bit more than what they were doing before. So, Chef, uh, I mentioned earlier, and you just brought up the notion of supporting Black-owned businesses. I'd read, I think it was a June Esquire article, I think it was a conversation with you that was captured, in which I thought you made a really powerful case for needing to make sure that we all match our words with actions and that we're actually 
investing and supporting in tangible and concrete ways uh, Black-owned businesses. I think in that Esquire article you said there, there's, uh, you know, let me be clear, there's nothing easy about being a Black restaurant owner. Talk about what you were trying to get across in that article and how, how we kind of advance that argument. I mean, for me, you know, watching George Floyd get murdered was really was really hard for me. I remember like pacing back and forth through the days in the restaurant, sitting in the corner, just sitting there screaming, hollering, like really upset and trying to figure out how to channel my voice. And I never wrote an opinion or an op-ed ever before. And, you know, I reached out to some, some, rest, some editors that I knew and said, hey, would you do this? And Jeff Gournier of Esquire has always been a supporter of mine, but also the black community really heavily. You know, when I started to write this article, I said, how can I make people realize, you know, something just very simple, like supporting a business? And what does it take to support a business? And in my career, I would hear many food writers through my career say, Harlem is too far away. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean Harlem is too far away? And like, it's easier to get to Chicago than it is to get to Harlem. And I'm like, but you got to pass Harlem to get to Chicago. Yeah, if you're going to LaGuardia Airport or you're going to JFK, you got to go past Harlem unless you live in Brooklyn, right? Or you're going to Newark. But 50% of the time you're passing Harlem. Like that's just a very ignorant statement. And so in that moment, that's what, what I was channeling was like, you know, food writers, but beyond food writers, people come to Harlem, they jump out of an Uber, they eat in a restaurant, they jump back in. And they don't want to be associated with the community, but they'll say they went to Harlem or to a black community. It was like, well, take a moment, walk in the street, see what's around you, go to that small shop, eat at that corner store, go to the fried fish market, like experience the community that's a part of the where you're around. And most black business that open either cash out their 401k from a, a, a job they were working on because they wanted to open up a, a black owned restaurant or business. They very rarely get a small business loan and God willing, if they find an investor, God bless them, right? Uh, because most of the time they have to convince the investor that they're going to open in a black community and the investor goes, well, the black community is not going to support you or people outside the black community aren't going to support you. So I'm never going to get my money back. And I, all I was trying to say is if you just take 10% of which you make a year and put it back into a black community, it will, it will help the community or put it back into a black owned business, it will push the community to new heights, right? Because that money is going to circle, that 10% is going to circle around, but that's that 10% is going to probably help people start to make money. That's, that money is going to drop to the bottom line. Um, so don't just walk around saying you care for black lives if you can't walk into a black owned business and look on the shelves and give it the same amount of money that you give a white owned business. Because most of the time when somebody walks into a black-owned business, they feel it's too expensive or, you know, the customer service wasn't good enough or, you know, you didn't open up on time. But all that reflects on uh, in, in the areas of there's not enough support there. So the price might be a little bit too high because they don't have enough support. So they got to get as much money as they can. The hospitality isn't good because they don't make enough money to have enough people working in the space. And they probably are late because the owner's working open to close just to keep the business open. So it's just little things, right? And, and that's what I was just trying to get across. But just also just from a cultural standpoint, like we should just all be trying to help each other out through the hard. This is, I think, the hardest times in most people's lives. 
I don't think there's been a harder time. And it could be, right? 9-11 could have been harder for you. Sandy could have been hard for you. Maybe your parents were in the whole world at once, right? Yeah, but for I think you're right, though. But for, for the whole world at once, right, in this moment, and for as long as a year, uh, likely, uh, this is, you know, certainly we, we've got a young staff and share our strength. This is the hardest thing any of them have ever been through. And I, I'm not as young. I'd say it's the hardest thing I've been through. So I think you're absolutely right. Listen, I got, I, I woke up the other day, I rented a car and I was walking to go to this car rental place. And I was like, where is this line? This li Where's this line going? I've never seen a line like this long where I live. And I walk and there's a line in for the church and the church is handing out food. That line was around the corner like literally wrapped around the corner. And I was like, oh my God, like if this church here by my house is handing out food that's never handed out food before, that means that the, and what I believe is the economy is coming back 50% full. It's not coming back 50% empty. That's a lot of people out of jobs that are going to need help in a lot of different ways that we're all taking for granted. When you say it's uh, not easy being a black restaurant owner, say what that means. Are, are you ever... ever able to forget that you're a black restaurant owner or are there daily uh, challenges? I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm very thankful. You know, I'm like the true one percenter, probably black restaurant owners. But you know, when I was applying for my PPP money, I got the, I got declined three times. You know, my, who I bank with told me our paperwork was wrong. And my accounting department was like, what are you talking about? We submitted 150 of these for other restaurants. We never got any declines. And they were like, no, it's wrong. So you're, you're, you're declined. And would give us no reasoning, like reapply. We reapplied again. We got declined again. I had to go with like a small bank out of Harlem that I didn't bank with. And there's a lot of black-owned business that just weren't able to get PPP money to stay alive because there's, I don't, I'm only the reason it points to is that you are black, right? Because if you're not getting a reasoning or for me – I'm getting the you're getting this reason, this small reason because your paperwork is wrong, and then your accounting company is saying to the people at the bank, "Hey, 149 other people applied, and you didn't tell us this, and we fill out the paperwork the same exact way." Could only point back to what what you are, because on that paperwork for PPP, you had to disclose if you were black, Latino, white, you know, so that that's really hard. And and then think about if you're a black-owned business company. Black-owned business that didn't have an accounting company, you were filling it out yourself. That's hard. And a lot of those businesses are, are closed now because they weren't able to get PPP. Or your landlord squeezed you because you couldn't, you didn't, you didn't have a lawyer to negotiate your lease. So your landlord was like, hey, you're not gonna pay me, get out. And there's a lot of a lot of those stories. Um, or people think about people that you're 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 hiring that might have to take care of a sibling that got coronavirus. Now you don't have the staff. So there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's a lot of things that you don't get access to. And I think we're starting to see that. And I'm seeing the private sector really step up to help try to even the playing field. So, so black owned business can get a fair shot to survive or to progress and I think black-owned businesses want to be considered uh, like any other business out there, that what they do. Why it's really important for me at Field Trip to figure out how to expand Field Trip, right? Because when we look at the fast casual market, 
there's really only one large fast casual company out there that's black owned, which is Golden Crust. Besides that, there's not there's no other conglomerate or large, you know, more than five units, more than ten units, more than is that right? units. Yeah. So that, that's amazing. So it's like, well, let me push, right? Because then that helped to change the narrative. But I also it also makes investors say, hmm, let me go look at this company or or a developer go, I did business with JJ. Let me try to go and talk to this black woman or black man to put them in a space here too, or what I have developing. So you have to, for me, it's like opening these doors so that people could come behind and get the same opportunity that others that don't look like them get is really, really important for me um, when I when I am when I am talking or I'm trying to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And do you think, JJ, that um, that the restaurant industry two years from now, four years from now, ten years from now, does it look and act the way it once did, or is it different because of what you and so many of your colleagues have been through and through some of the uh, the 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 meaning that you've found in doing this work a different way? I think the restaurant industry has no choice but to come back differently. And I know a lot of people from the old guard is, is just trying to figure out how to keep their restaurant open, but it has to come back more diverse. Chefs are trying to figure out how to end hunger, right? And look at Daniel Hum. He had, he has strived for excellence, has won all these awards, and he's made this big shift now because of Rethink Foods showed him this way to help into 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 show people it can be a different way in society, right? And and he's and he's doing that. So if he can do that, anybody can do that. And I I, I just believe you know my friend who's the director of global operations at Milos, you know his his concern is like I want more diverse people eating in our dining room, right? I want more people that don't look like our average customer coming here and experience our food at the quality and get the hospitality they deserve. So people are thinking different i think it's a lot of the younger generation i think it's i think it's peep i think it's a lot of that who are going to dictate it but the restaurant industry has to feel what i consider like the world it has to look and feel like the people in the community you're in you just have to give people equal chance to to strive for greatness and we can't we can't can't you know, the simple terms, we cannot give them the opportunity because of the color of their skin. That's just absurd. Right? And that's just absurd to me. But we will take people that you will take their money if they, you know, regardless what their skin color is. So I think I think those are the those are the areas that we'll see different. But yeah, the restaurant industry is gonna be a very different place, a very different makeup. And I think and I and I'm not, I don't want to get too political here, but I think what the current administration showed us in the restaurant industry was that restaurants are a luxury, not a necessity. And a lot of people are proving that wrong. Yep. Yep. Well, this conversation, Chef, gives me a a lot of hope for a a lot of different reasons, Uh, mostly knowing that your voice is out there, but knowing also that there's going to be more field trips, hopefully, um, in places that we all get to to travel. Uh, Will there also be another uh, book down the road? That a- oh yeah, yeah, yeah! I'll definitely write more books. Uh, working on a rice book as we speak, and then I think when I when I get close to forty, my third book, I'll do a memoir, kind of like a tell-all to give you the journey of JJ. So 
volume uh, one. Volume if, one. If, yeah. if, it's, if you're 40, it's only volume <laughs> one. You have, to, you have to write a volume two when you're 80. <laughs> <laughs> Chef JJ Johnson, uh, thank you so much for all you're doing in the community, for the way you've been a supporter of Share Our Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign. Uh, you've certainly made a big impression on so many of our supporters and I think led them to uh, you reach down deeper into do more inspired by your uh, activism and by just the excellence of your cooking and the quality of everything you do. So it's really been a, a treat to get to talk to you. I hope uh, we find ourselves crossing paths in person uh, before much longer. It feels like it's been too long. And uh, every time I listen to you or read about you, I just I feel like uh, the industry and our society has a better future. So thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. This is Billy Shore. I've been talking to Chef J.J. Johnson. His restaurant is Field Trip. There's going to be more of them. His book is Between Harlem and Heaven. Um, you've been listening to Add Passion and Stir, and I'm grateful to the entire team at Share Strength and our No Kid Hungry campaign and our producer, Paul Whittle, at District Productive. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find our archive and library of episodes, and you can rate them and rank them and share them with friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore. Mm-hmm.